Okay. So I'd like to begin tonight with a poem by David White. He says, you must learn one thing the world was made to be free in. Give up all the other worlds except the one to which you belong. Sometimes it takes darkness and the sweet confinement of your aloneness to learn anything or anyone that does not bring you alive is too small for you. So we could say that here on retreat, you have been experiencing the confinement of your aloneness. For some of you, it may seem sweet. For others, it may not seem so sweet. But this is part of the learning here, is this remembering of our aliveness. It may not look like that. You know, you come in the hall and you see people sitting like statues. You see them walking around like robots. You think, what's alive about that? It looks kind of dead. But actually, I think of people coming on retreat uh, like little ice cubes. We come in the door all formed and perfectly together in our ideas and our opinions and our identities. And, and, and the process of, of, of being here, of bringing attention into the inner world, into our bodies, into our hearts, into our minds, begins a process actually of unfreezing us where we are not so frozen, we unfreeze, we, we learn, to, we remember our actual fluid nature. Our nature is fluid. Our nature is uh, alive. So this means feeling what we have refused to feel. David White has another line from another poem where he says, opening to the life we have refused, opening to the life we have refused again and again, until now, until now. When we come into now, we begin this process of unfreezing, and it is a good thing. It also means seeing what we have hidden from ourselves. This thawing means opening, opens our hearts, our bodies, our minds in a way which actually begins to kind of sneakily but surely work on our perception, our perception of ourselves, our perception of who and what we think we are. So as you have seen in the first three days of this retreat, to unfreeze can be challenging. To feel what we have refused, to see what we have hidden, can mean that we may be uncomfortable at times. We may be challenged to feel willing to open to that which is difficult. It takes courage. It just does. Trungpa Rinpoche called it being a spiritual warrior. This willingness to look within and, and explore what we don't usually give attention to. He said this, 
The key to warriorship is not being afraid of who you are. Ultimately, that is the definition of bravery, not being afraid of who you are. That means not being afraid of all these refused and hidden parts, not being afraid of our anger or our grief or our longing or our loneliness or our joy or our love or our our jealousy, our, our passion, not being afraid to meet it with this moment-to-moment, kind and open, mindful attention. On my first long retreat, which was now almost 30 years ago, I came in contact with fear. It wasn't fear about anything in particular, and that's what was so confusing in my mind about it. I was on a in a beautiful retreat center, very much like here, with wonderful teachers, very kind people. I had friends on the retreat. There was no nothing unsafe. There was no, nothing obviously to be afraid of, and yet I felt all this fear when I sat. It was a a. a meeting a deeper level of fear, a more primordial level of fear, you could say, that wasn't about anything. It was just the fear of being here. So I worked with it in, in, with the help of my teachers, and I eventually got through it. And on the journey of working with it, I learned a lot. And in the, I discovered many inner resources I did not realize were there to support me. I wouldn't have known about those inner resources unless I had been willing to meet the fear. And so that is how the practice works. It gives us challenges, but it also shows us how to meet them. Learning to bring mindful awareness into the body is one such resource. Mindful awareness in the body is one such resource. And that is what I want to talk about tonight, being as on this retreat we are giving so much luxurious attention, you could say, to the body challenging attention, but also quite luxurious. When in your lives do you ever go to two yoga classes a day? (laughs) So as we shine the light of awareness into the body, we connect with the ever-changing sensations, with breathing, with the sense doors, seeing, hearing. Hearing, seeing, (laughs) smelling, tasting. All these sense doors begin to light up. Has your food begun to taste more flavorful? Just by bringing awareness into the body, the body begins to awaken. We become more aware of the feeling tones of all aspects of our physical experience. The feeling tones of pleasant, unpleasant and neutral. And what happens as we do this? We begin to experience the body as thawing, not as so numb, not as so frozen, but as alive and vibrant. 
we may discover a sense of awake presence, of fully being here. Not being here as Mary Jones or Tom Smith, not as mother, father, boss, son, uh, student, whatever your role in life is. None of that is required when we come into this fully alive, fully awake, living presence, open and available to whatever arises. So right now, uh, I'd like to encourage you to actually invite you, as we're sitting here, as you are sitting here listening to this talk, I'd like to invite you to be aware of your body because awareness in the body is what brings forth this quality of presence. So right now, just as you do in sitting meditation, feel the connection of your buttocks with the ground, with the cushion or the chair. Feel the support of the ground underneath you. Feel your breathing. Notice your body. How does it feel? Where is it feeling alive and vibrant? Where is it feeling tight or constricted? Just as we do in the sitting meditation, we can bring this awareness into the body right here, right now. Just as I am doing as I'm talking to you. I can be aware in the same way. So this encouragement is to have 80% of your attention in the body in this way. Simple, direct sensing into your physical presence right here, right now. And listening with only about 20% of your attention. That's all it takes. Are you interested in making that experiment? Yeah? Yeah, let's try it. See what it is like to listen with this sense of groundedness and, and awareness in your body, in your physical experience. And by the way, this is a good practice to take home with you, to take this into your everyday life, throughout the activities of your day, into conversations, whether they're on the phone or in person with, with others, to bring this kind of awareness of your body, always with you, feeling your presence in this very simple but interesting way. It will help you to feel more alive, more awake, more here. So the Buddha taught this mindfulness of the body as one of the primary domains of experience that we should pay attention to. And so he instructed the people who came to him, just as we have been doing, how to explore the body directly. Now he did this within the larger context of his teaching, which was the intention to lessen suffering. 
The Buddha said over and over and over again, I teach one thing and one thing only, suffering and the end of suffering. His first teaching was the Four Noble Truths. The first noble truth being that there is in life, inherent in existence, this quality of unsatisfactoriness, or what he calls suffering, dukkha. The fact that things here can be difficult to bear. Not that life is one big drag, but that there is this quality that we keep bumping into of things never being quite right. That's one way to say it. Or we just get everything the way we want it and it all falls apart. That quality of things never, in a sustained way, being as we wish them to be. He taught the cause of suffering. What is the reason for this? Simply put, that we want it to be different, that we're not aligned with the way it is, but we're constantly at war with the way it is. We're constantly wanting things to be other than they are. So in this teaching, and then the third noble truth is, of course, the end of suffering, that there is a way to uh, understand this very profoundly on all levels of our being and bring this quality of unsatisfactoriness to an end. So this means opening ourselves, first of all, before we can bring it to an end, we first have to recognize it. We first have to see the truth of it. And so the Buddha said, don't take my word for it. Look into your own experience and see if there is this quality of unsatisfactoriness. See if there is this quality of things never being quite right, never like you want them to be. So we do this in our practice. You've had many opportunities here to see that. And we also reflect on the suffering that we see around us in the world, in other people, in the world situation. We just open ourselves to meeting it, to seeing the truth of it. And not just our suffering, but the suffering of all sentient beings. Sentient, the word sentient means conscious or aware. It also means responding with feeling. We are sentient beings. We are aware beings who respond to suffering with feeling, whether it's our own suffering or the suffering of another. There is this quality of feeling that we have as sentient beings. So, with this intention that the Buddha had to help people lessen, reduce, end suffering, what does mindful awareness in the body contribute to that goal? That's what I want to explore with you. From Ajahn Mun, he says, in your investigation of the world, Never allow the mind to leave the body. Examine its nature, 
see the elements that comprise it. See the impermanence, the suffering, the selflessness of the body while sitting, walking, standing, or lying down. When its true nature is seen fully and lucidly, the wonders of the world will become clear. In this way, the purity of mind can shine forth, timeless and delivered. So clearly, what he has in mind goes, uh, goes much further, we could say, goes a much further way than stress reduction. A lot of mindfulness of the body now is taught as stress reduction. That's a great thing. But this is a much more profound intention, much more profound, to see that we can learn about the nature of reality by focusing on the body. Isn't that interesting? It also, because of the nature of awareness, it orients us in a particular way when we bring awareness into the body. We are learning to be present. We are learning to make the present our primary reference point for what is true, what is, what is to be known. We are also, in a subtle way that we're not aware of at the beginning, we see it later over time, we are beginning in this anchoring our attention in the body over and over again, being aware in the body. We are shifting from an orientation to reality that makes thinking about things the primary focus. We are shifting to a way of knowing through awareness. And this is a profound shift in our orientation to the truth, to who we are, to what is true. We are beginning to rely more on our capacity to be aware than on our capacity to think about things, to figure it out. We are shifting from thinking about things to being mindfully awake in the present. Eckhart Tolle calls this an evolutionary step in the history of humans. This shift from thinking about things to learning to rest in awareness, seeing reality through the eyes of awareness. He is supported by Wang Po, who said this some centuries ago, Wang Po tells us, the foolish reject what they see, not what they think. The wise reject what they think, not what they see. It really is an interesting exploration. What do we trust? What we see, what we are aware of, what we know in that way, or our opinions, our conjectures, ideas about things. Which are we going to trust? So Howard did some exercises with you around awareness and and being present in awareness. I'm, I'm asking you to bring awareness 
into into bring awareness of the body into your your presence here tonight and we begin to 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 catch on that awareness and being present go together you can't be aware anywhere else but in the present and awareness is only found here in the present if you look for awareness in the future you won't find it why because we're always here this is the present always here so this brings us to another understanding this from Leonard Jacobson you spend very little time in the present moment reality exists only in the present moment therefore you spend very little time in reality where do we spend our time most of our time we spend thinking about things having ideas about things, telling ourselves the story of our lives. How's it going? Oh, I like this. I don't like that. I really think she's wrong, or I really have this belief in this and not that. And we just, you know, you know, the, you know what it's like. This is what we do. So Ajahn Mun, again, says, bringing awareness into the body, we can see impermanence. We can see suffering we can see the selflessness of the body. Wow, that's quite a thing, isn't it? So let me talk about these three aspects that he mentions. The first, impermanence. When we bring attention into the body, what do we notice? Change, breathing in, breathing out sensations appearing and disappearing. Just when we get the hang of thinking about sensations, they're gone. Oh, this is stabbing searing. Oh, where did it go? It's gone. It's changed. It's morphed. So it's a very delicate awareness to see that the body that seems so solid is actually quite fluid, quite... Uh, it's like a living field of energy that is always dancing and changing. Sights coming and going, sounds arising and passing, tastes, smells. Has anything in your experience stood still today? Have you been able to hold on to that lovely feeling you had this morning or that horrible time you had in the dining room. Where is it now? Gone. It came and it went. We are in a sea of change, ceaseless change. And some of these changes in the body are so microscopic, we don't even know they are going on. Did you know? The body replaces with a new skeleton every seven years all while you're not paying attention. <laughs> the body grows new skin once a month. The body replaces new eyebrows every three to five months. The body replaces a new head of hair every two to five years. The body makes a new liver every six weeks. The body makes new stomach lining every five days. The body gives birth to 100 billion red cells every day. 
Every breath we take, we inhale billions of atoms that end up as heart cells, kidney cells, brain cells, cells. 50,000 of the cells in your body will die and be replaced with new cells, all while you are listening to this sentence. All without your permission. This is going on. Radioactive isotope studies show the body replaces 98% of its atoms in less than one year. Is this body solid, fixed, permanent? I don't think so. It's in a constant process of replacing these parts, of doing the work of a body. It's a living, amazingly complex organism. So when we bring awareness into the body, we begin to sensitize ourselves to this fact of living in a, a, in a field of, of, of alive, energetic transformation. Awareness in the body also reveals suffering, does it not? Unpleasant sensations. Feelings which are difficult to bear, pain, torments, torments of the body, torments of the mind. So here is suffering, the suffering of the body. And our job is what? We think it's to get rid of it. We think that is the task, to get rid of the pain, to come and find the, the, the final peace, the bliss, the insight that will forever remove this pain. Actually, we are not able to do that. It's unrealistic. What we are instead called to do is to come into a new relationship with this very pain, with this very suffering. And that means how to, rea how to relate to it without adding to the pain. Most of the time we add to the pain by what? Resisting, hating it, judging ourselves, getting discouraged, feeling victimized, looking for somebody to blame. We do a lot, don't we, that just makes it worse, does not allow our suffering, our pain to lessen. This is, this is suffering. This is what the Buddha was talking about. This endless reactivity to what we don't like, to how it should be different. The third thing that Ajahn Mun mentioned is this quality of the selfless nature of the body. Awareness in the body reveals its selfless nature. Now, this is a hard one for Westerners to get because we live in a materialistic culture. We think our body is who we are. And so we give an inordinate amount of time and attention to the appearance of the body, having the right kind of body. I want a different kind of body. I mean, who here is really completely satisfied with how their body appears? Probably nobody. Everybody wants something a little better. And so, you know, we live in a culture where you can do that now. 
You can order up the body you want, practically, which in itself is kind of strange. But nevertheless, we give so much, we, we, we believe so strongly that that is who I am. The appearance is who I am. Or we look for comfort. We want to be comfortable. Or we want to keep our body alive at you know any cost. But is this body who we are? That's what the practice will, that question will come up eventually in your practice, if it hasn't already. Is this body who you are? Do you own your body? Usually, you know, if you think it's who I am, I should own it. I should be able to tell it what to do. Can you, can you stop your body from, you know, getting old? Can you stop your body from getting sick? Can you, can you say to your body, don't die? You, I, you belong to me, don't die. No. So these are the kinds of contemplations that we begin to ask ourselves about, inquire into. When we explore the body with mindful awareness, we also begin to appreciate the intimate connection of mind and body. One thought, you know, you might be sitting here in the hall having a peaceful time, nothing much going on. You're having thoughts, but they're kind of, you know, what's for lunch or, you know, what will I do after the walking or, you know, things like that, nothing. And then one thought may arise. Oh, my God, I forgot to tell my husband to feed the cat. <laughs> and, you know, one, one kind of thought like that, and your whole body will start vibrating. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? How does that work? You have a thought, and the body is reacting. On the other hand, we know, and people who study this know, that body chemistry has a large impact on the way the mind functions. They seem to be connected, mind and body. They live together in some kind of intimate connection, which is mysterious. We haven't yet figured that out. We don't quite know how that works. I want to say more about this mind-body connection in a minute, but first I want to mention another way that mindfulness of the body can really help us in our lives, here on retreat and at home as well. This, by the way, before we continue, how are you doing with the awareness in your body? Are you still with it? How many people have forgotten about it? Yeah, what, what happens? Why do you leave? What takes you out of this awareness of the body? That might be a good thing to explore. And then notice you can easily come back. It's right here, always available. Okay. So getting used to living in the body in this way, grounding our attention in the body, can help to keep us sane in our lives can help to slow us down a little bit. The body, you know, lives at the pace of life. The pace of life is rather slow. If you watch a garden grow, 
it doesn't go real fast. You know, things don't shoot up out of the <laughs> out of the ground. And, oh, you know, it's not like that. Life happens. It's un it's unmistakable. Gardens grow. We change. Things happen. We don't see it change. We don't. We're not aware of it, but it's happening in the same way the body lives at that pace. So to stay, keeping our attention in the body allows our bodies to feel calmer, more grounded, more safe, more sane. It helps the mind to slow down, to live in a more uh, sane way with attention in the body, especially when we're stressed or when some big drama's going on, we're having a lot of feelings or thoughts, to have this, to know that the body can be our grounding cord, bring it back, bring our attention back to the breath, to the body. What a wonderful thing to learn to do. This is something I learned a lot about when I was experiencing that fear on retreat. I discovered what did not help with the fear was to tell myself the story over and over and over again. Oh my God, I'm this fear will never go away. I'm just going to be like this all the rest of my life. You know, that really made it much worse. On the other hand, if I could follow the instructions of my teachers who said, come into the body, feel, where do you feel the fear in your body? What are the sensations that that go with fear, and the sensations might be pounding, throbbing, holding, tension, heat, pressure, but I discovered I could be with those sensations. I could actually be present with those sensations. They weren't, you know, it wasn't my favorite thing to do, but I could do it. That kept the fear abated. The fear abated. The fear lessened. I felt more like I could handle what was going on. So this awareness in the body is no small thing. It can help us to meet that which is difficult to bear. It creates more space inside for things to be felt and known. Trungpa Rinpoche said, meditation, I think this is an interesting way to think about it. He said, meditation is the discipline of making space. When we sit, we're making space for ourselves to be here, to feel what's going on, to notice what's here. And physics tells us that the empty space at the heart of all matter are particles and waves appearing and disappearing, mysteriously responding to consciousness. And as we bring, so as we bring awareness into the body, it does appear that we begin to feel more spacious inside, that we don't feel so dense and tightly held together. And this space begins to inform how we feel connected to the world. We begin to sense that we are connected to a larger energy field of awareness. We may feel more open, less separate, not so solid. Less of the sense of I'm over here and you're over there and, you know, that's it. No, we begin to sense the energetic flow between us 
or among us. We begin to sense the larger field in which we are living and breathing. Another way to say this is that the practice of bringing awareness in the body over time shifts, begins to shift our identity. This more relaxed and softer sense of a spacious awareness begins to shift our identity from feeling so separate, so bound, so autonomous and so independent to a sense of self that is not so boundaried, not so separate, to a more fluid, feeling-based orientation. So awareness in the body actually relaxes and softens this rather painful separation we often feel. Another way to say this is that we may begin to sense in a more uh, global way the intimate connection between mind and matter. The physicists now speak of the quantum hologram. Have you heard of that? The quantum, how many of you have heard of the quantum hologram? Okay, well, I get to tell you about it. Not that I understand it, mind you, but that shouldn't stop me. What I make of it is that it is described, this quantum hologram uh, is described as a field of energy in which we are embedded and which mysteriously connects us with all of life. Some scientists call this field nature's mind. Stephen Hawking, in his book A Brief History of Time, calls it the mind of God. Many scientists now call it the quantum hologram. They describe the field that we are embedded in as being everywhere all the time. Everywhere all the time. A form of energy that's always already present. It's always here. It's always operating. It's everywhere all the time and appears to have been with us since the Big Bang. It also appears to have intelligence, responding to the way we think and feel. This is an amazing discovery, I think, personally. I'm just like fascinated that they can know these things. I, I don't know how they know them, but they... So, they did some experiments. They've done many experiments. I'd like to tell you about one experiment. This was an experiment in which a subject was, uh, some of his DNA was taken from him, and he was put in one room of a building, and his DNA was put in another room at some distance in the same building. He was given uh, movies to watch, very dramatic movies that aroused a lot of emotion. So he felt anxiety, he felt fear, he felt suspense, he felt lust, he felt grief, he felt all these things. And as he felt these things, his DNA reacted. They saw an equal and measurable change in his DNA simultaneous with his experience. There was no time lag. It was happening simultaneously. 
So they thought, well, that's interesting. Let's see how big this is. So they, they took the test further, and in, instead of putting the DNA in a, another room, the subject was in San Francisco. They took the DNA to Phoenix. <laughs> and they did the same test. 300 miles away, the same results. Instantaneous response from the subject's DNA, 300 miles away. So something's going on. So I'd like to just review a bit of what I've said about mindfulness in the body. It brings us into the present. It shows us impermanence, the truth of suffering, the selfless nature of the body. It helps us to stay grounded and sane in the midst of stressful life situations. It softens the illusion of being a separate self. And perhaps it puts us in touch, more in touch, with this mysterious connection of mind and matter. Isn't this wondrous? All this, you didn't know you were coming to hear all this probably. You just thought a little relaxation, a little. But actually, we're entering something quite, quite wonderful when we bring this kind of attention through our practice into our being. And hopefully, all of this will influence our attitude towards our body. We see that the body is the birthplace of the 10,000 joys of human existence, as well as the birthplace of the 10,000 sorrows and pains. Sometimes we feel such immense gratitude for this, what is called, precious human body. It's said to be a rare occurrence. Sometimes we may feel the body as a burden, as something that is difficult to bear. Neither of these perceptions are 100% true, because bodies have both. With a body, we get both. We get the enormous joy of being alive at times. We get the enormous sorrow and grief and pain of having a body that feels, that is sentient. Achan Chad, uh, one of our Thai forest teachers, no longer alive, but he said this. He said, the absence of pain is pleasure when you are old. The absence of pleasure is pain when you are young. <laughs> pleasure and pain are always with us in one form or another. And through the body, we become more comfortable with this capacity to meet both pleasure and pain. The Buddha discovered the middle way in his own practice between the mortification of the flesh when he starved himself and was trying to transcend this you know, body as a way of finding liberation. That didn't work. And so he saw that it was neither mortification of the flesh or indulgence of the flesh that would be a liberating force, only this middle way, 
we are called to do the same, not to have a punitive attitude toward the life of the body, nor to be indulgent, addictive in our pursuit of physical pleasure. And it's quite a dance in our culture because we live in an addictive culture. We live in a culture that starves young girls in the pursuit of perfection or beauty or something. I, I'm, there's probably a male version of that. I don't exactly know what it is to be so strong that pain doesn't bother you ever, maybe something like that. But we live in a kind of strange world that doesn't encourage a very loving, uh, caring relationship to the body. So are you kind to your body? Are you realistic in what you expect of it? Mindful awareness in the body will help you perhaps be more sensitive to the needs of the body, to your limitations, to your needs for sleep, for ease, for well-being, for calmness. In the Buddhist tradition, we are also asked, as well as to be mindful of the body, to reflect on the life of the body, how it is born, how it grows, how it matures, how it ages, how it withers, how it dies. Like a tree or a plant or any living thing, the body is here for only a while. How many of you are going to die? Well, I will give you the, the, the story that Stephen Levine tells or told when he, did, when he used to teach um, workshops on death and dying. He asked an audience of like hundreds of people one time, how many of you are going to die? And just as here, he said it took a really long time for people to raise their hands. Do we believe it? Maybe not. We think other people die. I don't die. So Achan Cha was giving a talk one day outside of his hut in Thailand, and he, he had a glass, perhaps very much like this one. Oh, well. Um, he had a glass, and he said, you see this glass? Oh, thank you. He said, you see this glass? He said, to me, this glass is already broken. It's already broken. I know it's not here forever. It's like everything in this world. It will eventually break. It will fall apart. It will decay. It's not forever. He said, but knowing that, I can appreciate it while it is here. I can enjoy this glass. I can make good use of it. I can take good care of it. It is here. It is, it is a good glass, but not to be fooled by it. So that is quite a teaching for us. Can we say the same about our body? Not be fooled that it's going to be here forever. But while it is here, enjoy it, appreciate it, take good care of it. Appreciate what it brings us. Our culture is weird about the body. It's also weird about the death of the body. We rarely see dead bodies. It's really hard to go find a dead body to see if you, if you wanted to see one. 
you have to get permissions and all kinds of things. In India, all you have to do is walk down the street and you may see, you know, a body being carried on the way to the cremation ground. It's no big deal. It's much more part of life, you could say. And in the Buddhist tradition, practitioners, at least in Asia, are encouraged to look at dead bodies, to contemplate them, to open their eyes and their noses and their ears and their to see this is death. This is what it looks like. This is the body when it is no longer alive, when it is no longer pervaded by this consciousness. It is flesh and it falls apart. After the tsunami in Thailand, there were monks, there were stories in the newspaper about how the monks were caring, caring for all the bodies as best they could. The monks were doing it because they were used to contemplating corpses. And the reporters that were reporting on the story were amazed to hear that for the monks, this was part of their spiritual practice, this contemplation of death and impermanence. This reporter interviewed a monk, and the monk was saying that to look at corpses, to contemplate them is part uh, is part of their practice, that when you look at a living person, you're seeing only the external aspect of that physical person. We live in denial of the fact that we have all these organs and bones and liquids and fluids inside of us, the monk said. We are obsessed with the externals. No one wants to see the internals, but we try to see them in an equal light, neither delighting nor being repelled by the attractive or the unattractive signs of the corpse. It is very common with us to have corpse pictures with us, to use them or just have them in our hut. It sounds incredibly gruesome and almost bizarre, but it is totally, totally normal and understood in Thailand. That is the way it is. Same in India. That's what monasteries are for. They are there to remind us of the true nature of life, which is this impermanence and transitory nature. So part of our practice of mindfulness in the body is this contemplation of the fact of it again, that this is, this is what happens. Early on in my practice, um, I was taught a, a meditation called the 32 parts of the body meditation. And it is a meditation in which you recite the 32 different parts of the body. And the parts of the body listed are things like, uh, you know, uh, uh, <laughs> phlegm, pulse, pus, blood, water, uh, uh, ligaments, tendons, well, you know, just a very unattractive list. What can I say? I can't even remember them because they're an unattractive list. If you wanted to write down all the parts of the body in the most unattractive way, you would have that meditation. And your your the goal is to recite the list over and over and over again in order, why? To create dispassion for the fact of it, that this is what the body is made of. It's no more than that. It's a bunch of parts. 
Isn't that interesting? Well, given 30 years ago, I had no interest in this whatsoever. I thought it was kind of a depressing thing to do. I, was, I liked my body. I thought it was delightful having a body. I didn't want to do it. Now, as I get older, it's all coming back to me. <laughs> These 32 parts are beginning to reveal themselves whether I want them to or not. Whether we like it or not, the fragility and impermanence of the body becomes more clear as we grow old. The Buddha said, I am of the nature to grow old. There is no way to escape growing old. I am of the nature to have ill health. There is no way to escape having ill health. I am of the nature to die. There is no way to escape death. All that is dear to me and everyone I love are of the nature to change. There is no way to escape being separated from them. That is a contemplation. Mary Oliver puts it this this way. I think Mark read this poem the other night. To live in this world, you must be able to do three things. To love what is mortal, to hold it against your bones, knowing your own life depends on it. And when the time comes to let it go, to let it go. Another poem. I could just read all these wonderful poems about death for a long time. But anyway, here's one. Uh, Another contemporary version of this contemplation of the fact of impermanence. This is a poem called Otherwise by Jane Kenyon. I got out of bed on two strong legs. It might have been otherwise. I ate cereal, sweet milk, ripe, flawless peach. It might have been otherwise. I took the dog uphill to the birch wood. All morning I did the work I love. As at noon I lay down with my mate. It might have been otherwise. We ate dinner together at a table with silver candlesticks. It might have been otherwise. I slept in a bed in a room with paintings on the walls and planned another day just like this day. But one day I know It will be otherwise. So this is our practice in this life. People die in all kinds of ways. The other day, a friend told me about his father's death at the age of 86. He had been healthy. One day, he was going upstairs with his wife, and she heard him say, whoops, this is it, and he fell over dead. In contrast, a student some years ago told me of her father's death, where he knew he was dying, he was in the hospital, and he was tormented. He kept saying to her, what did I do wrong? What did I do wrong? thinking that somehow dying was this huge mistake. It's not a mistake. We are meant to die. 
to close, I'd like to share a couple of poems from the Zen tradition, which within it there is a tradition <coughs> of masters writing death poems before they die. Here are two. One by Ichi Kyo. Empty-handed I entered the world. Barefoot I leave it. My coming, my going, two simple happenings that got entangled. Another one by Kiba. My old body a drop of dew, grown heavy at the leaf tip. My old body a drop of dew, grown heavy at the leaf tip. It's quite natural to die. Can we open ourselves to the fact of it? This beautiful, dear body that we now have the opportunity to care for and love and appreciate. So let's sit together for just a moment. May our practice teach us to let go peacefully. have about 30 minutes for walking and we'll once again do a, a closing thank you for listening to learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate